morning, church. Please be seated. Good morning also to those of you uh, joining us on the online streaming service. Now, before uh, this, reading the scripture passage, I thought I want to share with you a short excerpt uh, from my own uh, life. I remember years ago, before I proposed to Val, my wife, I decided to go to her home and seek her parents' permission first to marry their daughter. I'm not sure how many in my generation or the younger generation still practice this old-fashioned way of doing things. But I thought that was the proper, the prudent way to proceed if I ever want to uh, marry Val. So I would have to ask her parents for the permission to do so. So the plan was this. I wait for the right moment and Val is preoccupied with something. Obviously, I cannot remember what happened at the night when she was preoccupied. I'll quickly sneak out and then ask the parents for the permission uh, to marry her. Now, can you imagine the kind of emotions and thoughts that went through my mind as I, you know, went to the house that evening? Wow, hi, auntie, uncle, um, can I have your permission to marry Val? Oh, maybe I should say your daughter. Should I be proper, prudent about it in a solemn tone? Please, uncle, auntie, can I have your permission to marry Val, your daughter? Or should I sound very cheerful? Oh, I'm very excited to marry your daughter. Can you please let me marry your daughter? So these were the thoughts that were going through my mind. I was preparing for, you know, that evening. And the greatest question or the greatest fear I had was, what if they said no? If they said no, right? In all honesty, I cannot remember what happened that night. (laughs) Probably too nervous, you know. I probably said things that I shouldn't have said. But thankfully, somehow they gave their permission, and as they say, the rest is history. You know, the kind of anxiety was probably what went through Boaz's mind as he went to speak to the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, the next nearest kin to buy Naomi's land and to purchase, uh, to marry Ruth. On the one hand, Boaz wanted to do things prim and proper, to be prudent, to ask for permission from the elders, to ask the kinsman redeemer himself whether he would, you know, uh, marry her uh, roof and buy the land. So he wanted things to be proper and prudent. But on the other hand, he was probably very worried and concerned. What if this kinsman redeemer says, yes, I will buy the land and marry roof? Then he will be, oh, his heart will sing, kwa kwa, right? And unfortunately, this is exactly what happened in Ruth chapter 4. Let's turn to that passage. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, Tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. And what did the man say? I will redeem it. Probably his heart sank at the moment, but quick thinking, Boaz said, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And at this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Wow, Boaz very happy when eventually he said no, right? So then in verse 7, the author gives us the context, what was happening in those days. Now in earlier times in Israel, 
for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Melon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like, be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Come, let us pray. Lord, as we come before you, we come with your word here, Ruth chapter 4. Speak, O Lord. Speak your life, your truth, your grace through this story and the story of your word. The whole Bible, the account that we are here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now before I bring us to the main lesson for today, let me just address some potential controversies and you know, uh, questions arising from today's text. First of all, who is this guardian redeemer? Or in some Bible translation, the kinsman redeemer. And then it's related question, what is the exact nature of this kinsman's relationship to the deceased husband, Elimelech? So let me tackle the first question, which is slightly easier. And Leviticus chapter 25 basically describes the two examples in which a relative or kinsman may be involved in redeeming an unfortunate situation. The first is Leviticus chapter 25 verses 23 to 34. You can read the passage for yourself, but in summary, if a poor person had to sell his ancestral land, his land, his property, to someone outside of his tribal family, someone within his own tribe has the responsibility, the kinsman redeemer has the responsibility to purchase that land back. So we know Israel has 12 tribes, right? So those 12 tribes were all assigned a certain particular territory and boundary. Right? If you read the book of Joshua, you will know the allocation of allotment of all these boundary lines and so on and so forth. And so God made it very clear, if someone was poor, they had to sell their land to someone outside of their tribe. For example, someone from the tribe of Benjamin was poor, they needed to sell their land to someone from the tribe of Simeon. Okay, they can do that. But the kinsman redeemer from his same tribe, Benjamin, must go and now buy the property back on behalf of his relative. So that's the first example in the Bible of the kinsman redeemer's role. The second example is found in Leviticus chapter 25, same chapter, but further down, verses 47 to 45. And this time, the poor person is so poor, instead of selling the land, sells himself or herself as a slave, as a servant to a foreigner. Right? So again, even worse, maybe after using that money for the land sold off, now he had to sell himself or herself as a slave. And so in that passage, the kinsman redeemer is supposed to come and redeem his family or relative from the foreigner. That's how the kinsman redeemer or the guardian redeemer is supposed to function. These are the only two passages made it very explicit what's the role of the kinsman redeemer. What is described in this chapter, however, definitely goes beyond these two. These two Levitical commands. Here, uh, Boaz says, not only will you buy the land, which is okay, part of the Levitical rule, you are supposed to marry the person as well. right? So the fact that this closer kin was surprised that he also had to marry Ruth shows that actually this is not the usual practice. If it was the usual practice, 
probably this uh, kinsman redeemer, the closer one, would already have known about it. The fact that he was surprised by Boaz's comment here means that this was not the usual practice. Either that or he doesn't know about the laws at all. I mean, it's a day of the judges, right? Nobody knows what they're doing. They just do whatever was right in their eyes. But it's more likely he was surprised that he had to do this. And that suggests it is not the usual practice. So, next question. Who is this closer kin? Actually, the Bible doesn't really give us many clues. But the fact that none of the elders raise any fault with him suggests that he is not likely to be Elimelech's brother. We may not know who this person is or their relationship, but I think it doesn't detract us from the main point, which is Boaz wanted to do what was proper and prudent. Proper and prudent in order to acquire Ruth as his legitimate wife. So that's, that's the main thing. So Bishop Gordon Wong in his book actually discusses several other smaller issues, scholarly issues, but as he rightly concludes, none of them actually dent the overall message of Ruth chapter 4. That is, Boaz acts uprightly in order to have Ruth as his legitimate wife. The fact that the elders accepted the removal of the sandal really shows the legitimacy of the marriage. So before I go on to the main message, I think it's good to remind us what Pastor Emmanuel preached to us last week and pointed out to us. Let us be thankful for people like Boaz in our own lives. Let us be thankful for people like Boaz in our own lives, people who chose to do what is right, and act in a loving manner towards even those of us who have been unfaithful. People who might have even gone out of their way in order to respond to us, to redeem us, or to save us. Or people who might even choose to believe in us despite our questionable actions, doing funny things, wrong things, weird things, or even wrong things, right? And yet, there was someone who chose to stand by our side to believe in us. Let us be thankful for the Boazes in our lives. And of course, the Boaz par excellence is Jesus himself. Jesus himself, because even though he was God, even though he was God, he became one of us and even sacrificed his very life in order to gain us as his bride. Here, Jesus didn't just remove his sandals as a sign of the pact. Jesus removed all his glory, everything that he had in order to gain us as his bride. So Jesus is the Boaz par excellence. But where I feel the Lord really wants to speak to all of us today is found in verse 12. If you know your Bibles well enough, you will know the rest of Ruth chapter 4, how Boaz eventually became the great-grandfather of King David. But there is one name in verse 12 which stands out, and that name is Tamar. The Hebrew pronunciation is Tamar, right? But English pronunciation, Tamar. Who's Tamar or Tamar, you may ask? Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Now, she was the wife that Judah got for his eldest son, Ur. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot, but Ur basically was wicked in the Lord's eyes, and so he was put to death by the Lord. So Onan, his brother, was supposed to perpetuate, to continue his brother's line, lineage. Although, you know, this concept of kinsman redeemer wasn't developed until the book of Leviticus. Now here in the book of Genesis, we don't have this concept of kinsman redeemer yet. But somehow, there's this expectation that Onan, his brother, was supposed to perpetuate his brother's line. But Onan, according to the Bible passage in Genesis 38, didn't want to do so. He wasted his semen onto the ground, and therefore he did something wicked. And so the Lord also put him to death. So he was considered to have acted wickedly and also put to death. So now put yourself in Judah's shoes. You have lost two sons to the same woman, Tema. What will you do? 
So naturally, he did what most of us would have done, which is to say to Tema, okay, wait for my third son to grow up. Then I will give him to you. But obviously that didn't happen. Otherwise, the rest of Genesis 38 wouldn't have happened. Presumably, some years have passed. Judah still did not give his third son, Shela to Tema. And so Tema, being desperate, devised a plan. She disguised herself as a temple prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law, Judah, so that she can bear a child. Now, some of us might find her actions very questionable. How can she do something like that? But mind you, in those days, a barren single woman is the worst state to find yourself in. Right? In those days, this is the worst state anyone can find themselves in, a barren single woman. And so what Tema did then was really motivated by the basic instinct of survival and honour. I need to protect and feed myself. I need to protect my honour as a woman. And the story goes in Genesis 38, when Judah found that she was pregnant, he was angry. He wanted to burn her for her infidelity. How can you, my daughter-in-law, get pregnant? Who is this guy? Until he discovered he's the man <laughs> who made her pregnant. Now this is found, right, in Genesis chapter 38. And despite knowing this, he said, he confessed in verse 26, she, referring to Tema, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give to her my son, Shelah. Judah knew that he had wronged Tema. He had done wrong to her because he had kept her waiting to no end. She just kept waiting, he just kept her waiting forever and ever. And so Tema had to take matters into her own hands. Now, even though Judah eventually proclaimed Tema to be more righteous than him, it doesn't hide the fact that Tema devised quite an elaborate plan, a scheme, in fact, in order to get her goal, which means that she needed to dress up as a temple prostitute and in sleeping with her father-in-law. No reputable woman would do that, right? Why would she do that? And worse, why did the elders and the people at the gate bless Boaz and Ruth that their offspring will be like Tema's children. Isn't it a bad association? Why would you want to associate their offspring with Tema? This woman who did something so questionable. Did they know, maybe, of what Ruth did at the threshing floor? Somehow, did they see, eh? And we Pastor even explained last week, threshing floor, basically, is a place where prostitutes ply their trades at night. Did somehow someone spot Ruth and Boaz together on the threshing floor? And that seems like a an act of prostitution there. Maybe someone caught sight of them and reminded them of Tema. Possible. But even if they didn't see anything, there is no doubt that the story of Tema is not a glamorous story at all. Right? It's a very shameful story, isn't it? Even if her intentions were noble, she really wanted to protect herself to survive. What she did clearly was unethical. She dressed up as a prostitute, deceived her father-in-law, and even slept with him. To be compared to Tema isn't a compliment. At best, a backhanded slap. But let us go even deeper now. <clears throat> the mention of Tema and Ruth doesn't just stop here in Ruth chapter 4. The New Testament actually begins with their names. If you have ever glossed over Matthew chapter 1, I hope you will stop doing so from now. Don't show the list first. Hide it back. Okay, don't, don't show the list. Thanks. So... <clears throat> Coming back to Genesis, uh, no, Matthew chapter 1, don't ever gloss over this list. You see, ah, yeah, all these people, who are they? Don't waste time. Nah. Let's go to Jesus' story straight away. 
From now on, don't do that. Okay, every name there is important for a reason. And so there are five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. In verse 3, there's Tamar. In verse 5, there's Ruth, the Moabitess. There's verse 6, there's Uriah's wife. Interestingly, she's not named. Huh? I wonder why we need to study a bit deeper on that. But we know Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. And of course, there is verse 16, Mary, the mother of Jesus. No problems with that. But what most of us fail to realize is the fifth woman in this list. And in the passage, it's the second woman in the list of five. And that is found in verse 5. If you look at your own Bibles, whose name is that? It's Rahab. Verse 5 reads, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Did you ever know that? Boaz's mom is Rahab. And who's Rahab? The prostitute who hid the spies in the book of Joshua. Boaz's mom is Rahab. Wow. Is that why Boaz was so sensitive to the plight of Ruth in the first place? How hard it was for a foreign woman to live, to survive? Maybe Boaz witnessed firsthand for himself the unfair treatment that people dealt against his mom. How his mom suffered because she was a foreigner. Most of us here, majority of us here in Singapore, Chinese race, right? So we don't really understand it. But if you've ever lived overseas or if you are a foreigner in our midst, you understand it. There is always some level of discrimination against the minorities, against the foreigners. And so this discrimination probably led to the fact that Boaz never got married, even though he was a large landowner. The fact that he owned such a big piece of land, right, and has so many servants working the field, shows that he's a rich person. But yet, the text also implies he's a rather old man. He calls Ruth my daughter. So definitely there is an age gap. Why wasn't he married? Maybe it's because his mom was a foreigner. Maybe that also explains why there's a closer kinsman redeemer. Someone who is pure Israelite, but he's only half Israelite. And again, why was Boaz partial towards Ruth? Maybe Boaz overheard people gossiping about his mom. Oh, Rahab, the prostitute, it is mom. Maybe Boaz just didn't want Ruth to end up in the same fate. And so that's why he instructed his servants, be generous, be generous to Ruth. Otherwise, she might have to end up in the same fate as my own mother. Regardless of why Boaz was drawn to Ruth in the first place, whether his own mom Rahab had played a part indirectly or not, I mean, these are all my conjecture, my guessing of what is really unspoken of in the text. It's really not hard to conclude that the genealogy of Jesus isn't a genealogy, isn't an ancestry that people will be proud of. There's Tamar, who slept with her father-in-law. There's Rahab, the prostitute. There's Ruth, the forbidden Moabitess. There's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, whom David commits adultery with. Now, what do all these women have in common? They all have a very shameful past. They all have something to be ashamed of in their lives. They are all directly or indirectly linked with prostitution, infidelity, adultery. They all have some kind of filthy history. Now for the women in our midst, I know what you're thinking. Why you only pick on the women? I want to say in genealogy of Jesus, actually they are very terrible men as well. 
right? So this, and there are more terrible men than women in the passage. But in this, when the opportunity is right, maybe I'll speak about these horrible men in the genealogy of Jesus. But let's focus on today's characters. The amazing thing is that all these women, despite their shameful past, they all made it into Jesus' genealogy, listed there. And so here's the one and only lesson I want to remind all of us today. God is able to turn all our past guilt and shame Turn it around for good. No matter how shameful, how horrible our past may be, God can restore us and give to us a brand new future, a brand new hope. When we became Christians, we wish that God would miraculously erase everything that is bad and sinful in our past, right? Isn't that our wish? Ah, God wants to just remove all these bad things and its effects. But God doesn't do that. We probably wish that God would do that. Just imagine the kind of guilt and shame. Let's take another character, Bathsheba, would have felt in her own life. Because of her adultery, she indirectly caused the death of her husband, Uriah. Adultery is bad enough, but now she indirectly caused Uriah's death, her husband's death. Imagine the guilt that is upon her. Not just committing the adultery, but causing her husband's death. And then, the first child that was born to her died. Innocent child died because of David and her sin. Imagine the guilt that is upon her. What have I done? What have I done? And yet, if you read the account of Bathsheba, by God's amazing grace, the scripture says, David went in to comfort Bathsheba, his wife, and the child that was born to Bathsheba and David, and to David is Solomon. Solomon was the child given to David and Bathsheba to comfort them. Imagine that. Unbelievable, right? But it reminds us once again that God is able to turn even our worst, shameful, horrible past, turn it around, redeem it for good. God doesn't promise to remove our past, but what He promises is to redeem, to restore us from our shame. So what is it in our past that maybe weighs us down? What kind of guilt? What kind of shame? Is it a wrong that you did to someone? Maybe that's a severely broken relationship. Maybe in the past, you acted unfaithfully, you committed adultery, or you may even have harmed someone, a loved one physically. There's physical violence. And still today, there is no reconciliation, no peace, no forgiveness. Or for some of us, maybe it's a failure on our part to do something uh, we didn't do something right. Maybe by our silence, by our inaction, we may have unintentionally caused indirect harm. Perhaps someone, a colleague, could have been framed in your office, could have been wronged in your office, but in a bid to preserve our own lives, we decided to mind our own business, to keep quiet, and as a result, this person took the fall. Or maybe for some of us, there is a shameful, a secret habit that we have indulged in. And this is particularly true for many of us who have experienced sexual brokenness in many areas of our lives, but especially sexual brokenness. Maybe we have had multiple partners, both hetero and even homosexual. And to this day, this shame and the guilt continues to eat into us. And maybe still for some others, it could be the unspoken shame 
of singlehood and childlessness. What is it in our past that weighs us down? What kind of guilt? What kind of shame? Ruth chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1, they have a powerful reminder for all of us that God is able to turn our greatest shame around. God can restore even the most broken and sinful of us. You see, our God specializes in the business of redemption and restoration from shame. Our God specializes in the business of restoration and redemption from shame. In fact, for those of us who are single or barren, so called, God has a special message. We didn't even do anything wrong to be single or barren. God has a special message for if you are in this category. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 to 3 declares Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who are never in labor, because more of the children are the children of the desolate women than of her who has a husband. What a great restoration, a great promise there, a reversal of fortunes. And in verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left, your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their cities. What a great reversal. To the barren woman, look. That's not the end of your story. You will have descendants that will dispossess cities and nations. It's even greater than the promise given to Abraham. Abraham was promised an offspring, right? Who will be a blessing to the nations. But here, the women who is barren, they will have descendants that dispossess the nations. Just a side note here. It struck me as I did this sermon preparation, as I reflected on the history of Amokyo Church, that uh, those of you who joined Amokyo Church before 2009, you'll remember that Isaiah chapter 54 verse 2 was the verse given for us through the rebuilding phase, phase, right? A phase to enlarge the place of a tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back. And so it struck me that actually God has been, you know, speaking to us from the book of Isaiah quite a lot as a church. For example, the scripture verse at the back of the century is Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1. I shared with our prayer ministry and worship ministry uh, committees and people before. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, to build a house of prayer for the nations. That's God's heartbeat for us. And then as we celebrated our 43rd anniversary, I prayed at the corporate prayer, Isaiah 46, 43, verses 16 to 21. Forget the past. Don't dwell on it. God is doing a new work. And then as I prepared for this sermon, the Lord brought to my mind Isaiah 54. So interestingly, uh, somehow, the book of Isaiah pops up quite a lot for Amokyo Methodist Church. So it's really for all of us to discern as the body of Christ what God may be saying to us in this family here, how it ties in with Isaiah. But anyway, come back to my main point. God is in the business of restoration. He's in the business of redemption. Let me close with this vision that God gave Joseph Chen at the missions conference, which I attended recently at the end of September. And this vision that God gave to him, you remember Mr. Joseph Chen? He was the speaker for Irish Man. He spoke on a hospitable God. So in this vision that God gave to him, a person was bringing this beautiful glass bottle, beautiful glass bottle as an offering to the Lord. But somehow, this person tripped or fell and this glass bottle dropped, shattered into many broken pieces as we can imagine. No one, and obviously nothing, no glue, will be able to put this broken glass bottle back together again, right? 
We know it's impossible. How are you going to mend all these broken glass pieces to put it back to its original shape? Doesn't that scene represent us? We all have our broken pieces. And no matter what we do, somehow we can't put our lives back together again. The guilt, the shame of carrying all this brokenness with us. But then in this vision that God gave him, Jesus comes along and begins to sweep up all these broken pieces. The person, Joe himself, was expecting maybe Jesus would put together this glass bottle, a beautiful glass bottle, put it back together somehow by his miraculous power. But to everyone's surprise, what Jesus did was to put the pieces together, not the same glass bottle, but a brand new stained glass. A brand new stained glass. And maybe it's good for us to just up the blinds and for the camera to you know, focus on the stained glass. You know, many of us, we come to God with our broken pieces. And we hope that Jesus will put our broken pieces back together again into the same glass bottle. We wish that God will just remove our past, remove the effects of the past, and let us be ourselves again. But you know what? God has a far better plan. He has a far better promise than we can ever imagine. He takes the broken pieces of our lives and turns them into a new creation. Completely new creation from the broken pieces of our lives. Naomi went back to Bethlehem in search of a simple, better means of survival. She went back with the broken pieces of her life, hoping that the pieces would not shatter further. Surely, she had no idea that God would rebuild her life through Boaz and Ruth in a completely different way from what she had imagined. But you see, God had a different plan altogether. He always has a different plan from us. And God will redeem, restore, and rebuild Naomi's life completely different from her imagination because of Ruth and Boaz's extraordinary love. They were not perfect people, but they demonstrated extraordinary love to each other. They reflected God's desire to always redeem and to restore and to always be with us, no matter how broken we may be. And so, people of God, I want us to hear the word of God declared to all of us this day through the restoration of Naomi. God desires to restore us from our shame. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I'm not sure if you remember the song that we sang at the opening service, at the part of our worship at the start. Finish then thy new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 declares, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. It's no longer just a broken glass bottle. It is a brand new stained glass. In verse 18, Paul says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, bring us back to the main lesson for today. God is able to turn all our guilt and shame, turn them around 
for good. No matter how broken, how shameful, how sinful our past may be, God is able to redeem, to restore, and to rebuild something completely different. And now that God has done this work for us, Paul says, you go out as ambassadors, as broken people who have been made healed and restored, you, you now go out with the same message of reconciliation and restoration and rebuild the lives of people around you. As you are touched by Boaz's in your lives, and of course through Jesus, the Boaz par excellence, you go out and be that roof. You be that Boaz to someone else to redeem, to restore. You be God's channel to bring hope to a broken world. Come, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful message you've given to us today. That Lord, you are the God who is able to mend the broken pieces of our lives. But not many in the way that we, we think you should. But you have such a better plan for all of us. But help us, Lord, to surrender our broken pieces to you. To dare to trust in you. That what you rebuilt and what you redeem and what you restore is far better than what we can ever do for ourselves. We thank you once again for the story of Ruth, Boaz, Tamar and all these others. That God, you are not a God who gives up on us because of our sinful and shameful past. But you are the God who died for us, who sacrificed your life for us. To redeem and to rebuild us. So Lord, we freely surrender ourselves once again to you. Surrender the broken pieces of our lives once again into your loving hands. For we know what, who you are. Jesus, our kinsman, redeemer, our redeemer, our restorer. Surrender ourselves once again into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.